Hello and welcome to Royale Without Cheese, our bi-weekly podcast in which we discuss both the classic and the unknown of Hollywood and foreign cinema from the then and now. We are your hosts, me, Miguel Aido, Tomás Ferreira. Hello, hello. Hello, Tomás, and Leonardo Miranda. Hey there. Three filmmakers in an informal dialogue with a film review each episode. As part of our barbecue and scones, reviews in both English and Portuguese will be available for different listeners. Today's episode will be in English, and we'll be having a go at Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Portuguese speakers can head to the Portuguese-labeled content section. Now sit back and enjoy the windy. first film uh, I was thinking about the podcast films that we did um, it reminded me of the sort of days and confused sort of out there-ish everywhere-ish kind of style um, but yeah I mean it, it's it's a lot <laughs> yeah the editing is very intense we cut to people out. sometimes it feels like they're finishing each other's lines feels like it's just one single dialogue but it's being finished by different people at different times yeah the way it jumps from color to black and white to a 16 millimeter eight millimeter to the wide screen of the the film within a film there's so much going on yeah the editing really brings about a lot of uneasiness because it feels like the same dialogue is has different iterations, so it's like you're never quite in the same dialogue. It's strange the way it cuts. It's like you're jumping to different perspective, even though the same characters are in the scene, the same sort of angles. Um, yeah, it always feels a bit different. There's this constant um, feeling of of an editing which is very uh, fragile. It's almost like it's fragile. Yeah, uh, it's strange. It's crumbling the film. Yeah. Just like the industry that it's portraying. <laughs> dying Hollywood. <laughs> a shout out to an industry we don't know. <laughs> but I mean dying Hollywood in the context of the film. That it's portraying like a generation that is, you know, just disappearing and being replaced by the youth Bogdanovich in relationship to... Jay Canaford, John Huston, which in Huston himself sort of as a, a stand-in for Wells, it seems. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to think about it as well. I think, you know, the film has this autobiographical vein to it. <clears throat> and also, it's so self-referential, not in just in the autobiographical vein of it, but also in the context of it, because it is very much about the Hollywood new wave and uh, a director of old trying to... Uh, you know, remain hip with the crowd. And it's probably a director of old that much like, for example, um, well, I don't know, for example, Nicholas Ray, who transitions himself into a different period, uh, or Dennis Hopper, um, that feels more akin to the youngsters and to, uh, you know, his peers. And I think it's very, it's very much, the film gains power and value uh, a lot because it is Wells. Wells, Orson Wells himself, the the man and the character, 
uh, knowing that he his experience in Hollywood, his traumas, his difficulties, I think the film gains value because the awareness of that. And it's very much, you know, his uh, his story of trying to experiment with the form, trying to push further, trying to continue from from the place that uh, F for Fake started him on. Uh, but yet the constraints of an industry that wants to remain risk averse and um, audience uh, tests based uh, re in regarding to how they produce films uh, keeps keeps him from that. And you have uh, not only that, but also, you know, it's a film very much about 30 par third party views of, of a man, you know, and the man divided between his human self and his artist self. And how does, you know, where, where is, where does he really lie has a, a real person with intentions that can be truthful and readable by the people that watch his films and watch his art. Um, and I think everyone has an opinion, but he, he never really breeds. I think there's a, a very interesting moment where he's coming uh, to the ranch. Uh, he parks the car, he arrives. And at, at that moment, we have barely seen Jake Hannaford. You know, he's, he's always present in the mouth of others. You know, his crew, uh, the critics, the journalists who are just lying around to catch him. You just have a glimpse of his back leaving the studio at the beginning of the film. And, so, and the frenetic editing with these fast cuts between zooms and dialogue lines coming up upon each other, it really builds up the, this persona that he has that really invades everything and everyone. It has a pop culture phenomenon, a figure, you know. So when he arrives at the house, he's kind of admired by the whole cameras surrounding him, you know, the journalists coming in and the film students coming in with the Super 8 cameras. And this avalanche of cameras, uh, towards uh, him and everybody, the film crew, uh, the real people. It just feels so self-referential because both what is in front of the camera, both what constitutes the mise-en-scene and what is behind the mise-en-scene is a comment, is a reflection of where filmmaking is at this moment of the context, is a reflection of the fact that the constraints around the camera and the sound equipment have gotten loose and allowed us to uh, film differently. And that is both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And in that moment, when he see, sees this avalanche of cameras around him, I think Hannah Ford is both kind of insulted and disgusted by it, the fact that his privacy is being invaded, but at the same time, he just gives a smile. He smiles at it, you know, really kind of indifferent. And he's kind of, he's playing this role of being the man and the legend, I think. It's somehow... I feel the same towards Orson Welles. Who is the real Orson Welles? You know, you see him in, in, in interviews and, he, and he, you feel like he's such a man of the theater as well, an actor who has directed Shakespeare plays, who constantly hides behind masks. He often would do roles where he would have a fake nose and he would need that sort of mask. And he says about the other side of the wind that I essentially made a film where that I wouldn't direct. Yes, I'm experimenting with form, but you know, the other side of the, the film, the other side of the wind, the film within the film, the film directed by Jake Hannaford, isn't the film that I would do. So that is kind of a mask. But him allowing himself to do that, you know, kind of um, a fictional offshoot, experimenting with form, is interesting in itself. Uh, and um, and so Hannaford, just to sum up, is divided between um, the man and the myth. You know, he's a, where he, he's divided between. How much can I go as an artist when I have these kind of creeps and vultures around me questioning and criticizing everything I do? Um, 
And I think Jack Hannaford in our respect is very much Wells and, and he's and how disgruntled he is with the industry. And it's very sad. It's very sad because how can he, you know, continue to love and try to come back to a place, Hollywood, that seemingly loves him so much and admires him so, at least in the media and the public eye, but then rejects him and, and doesn't give him money to do his shit. You know, it's uh, yeah, that's what I, that's the main con contradiction in the film that I take. I find interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see that completely. I think John Huston, the Jake Hannaford, there's a sense that he's always performing for the cameras as well. Like he's cracking jokes and everybody laughs and he's like, always feels like he's like, he has prepared dialogue. He's, cause he has these one liners all the time that he's saying he's so charismatic. So yeah, in that sense, very much like Wells. Wells is also, you watch him, he's very captivating, but it also feels like watching a character watching a a performer and he's performing in interviews he's performing all the time but he's very captivating regardless but i think um isn't that supposed to be um like an actual film crew in, in during that day i mean i think that's supposed to be uh within uh, the, the context, context of the the context the film gives is that like uh, within the film that's like they just stole a bunch of students to bring cameras in like right isn't that what they say yeah, anyone yeah. with a camera eight 16 millimeter whatever they filmed in this is like a found footage film in a way yeah i i i think it, it's like it's, it's it's great moment in the life of a director he, he's like a, a great director of old classic hollywood he makes 70 years old and so it's, it's, it's almost like Orson Welles himself had invited all the people that love him, that have him in consideration, both journalists and film students alike, to just be at his house and record everything. But it's actually Zara, I think, one of the actresses that he worked with who demanded that everything must be recorded or something. But it is interesting, the idea of a film within the film. And, and the film, I think it's the only film that... Uh, the film, the other side of the real, the, the other side of the wind, the real film, the film that we've see, that we three have seen, is a film about itself. I think it's the only film that it's about itself. Um, yeah, kind of. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's weird to almost put it into words because to talk about itself, it fictionalizes itself. You know, it's 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 what's going on because the relationship between Jack Jack Hannaford and his own film, the other side of the wind is not the same as the other side of them that we are seeing is a relationship of Orson Welles with his own object of art, other side of the wind. So um, it's very I think that's a MC Hesher of... in that relationship. It's almost perfect that it was released 40 years later. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> like... that's kind of what I was saying. I think your perspective is a bit biased of the fact that you know the film came out today, whereas it was filmed in the 70s. So to what extent was the film already oh, but reflecting if it on itself? The, if it was done in the 70s, if it was released in the 70s, I would have the same thoughts. It, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it does not depend on the release being delayed. But that's but the, the point of... Uh, yes, of course, but I, I'm, what I mean is, in being delayed, it suffered from having a different editor, uh, taking notes from... going to the notes of Orson Welles, so it's not really the same thing that it yeah, was... Yeah, it puts into the question the authorship like how faithful exactly yeah is this For sure. but at the same time i do think that brings an interesting element this almost feels feels like a film without 
like an author. It feels like a, just yeah. a found film, like a crazy mishmash of ideas, of uh, intentions. And it gains this side that much said about the fact that the film is about starts it. to reflect about, about yeah, itself, exactly. which I don't think it was in, entirely possible, perhaps in the original. But came uh, with it. I disagree. The, I mean, <laughs> but but it's almost yeah. non-disagreeable because you don't know what the film was in the seventies. Um, the thing is, it is a film very based on improvisation with a lot of cameras going on. And Wells himself, when he started editing, because he did start editing at the time in this after seventy six, uh, he himself chopped it into little bits, into little pieces, and so that, and that's kind of the only way you can approach it, and then kind of meshing it together. So. And then you, even if uh, the editing would be would be different, the content that you have is this director of old treating this film that he cannot finish, that he doesn't have funds to finish, which is the other side of the wind. And it's very much reflective of the troubles that Orson Welles had to do it. So if this film came out then, I would feel the, you know, the same way. It's not about, yes, there is another arbitrarship. Yes, there's always the question that you talked about, you know, what is the real film? Perhaps it would be slightly different, but in the end, the content wouldn't be. The content is there. The characters are there. The the form of it is there from the shooting, because that's it's inherent to how, the way it was filmed. You are going to uh, have this frenetic kind of thing. I don't I don't believe you can have a very polished scene with this film in a hypothetical situation. If there were an original film made, you cannot have you know a wide shot, shot reverse shot. And not accepting it's it's just you know it's just very no, no, yeah. it feels all over the place. I do you agree. Know? I just think that since the editing had such an impact um, on the film that we've seen, it makes me wonder, you know, if if the post production could have changed the film so much, exactly how much of it was through the post production, and it got to the point where it got through editing. So it's just because of that that I I wonder if it was any different. But I, I mean, I agree. It's considering that he directed the whole thing in the seventies and he started editing at the time. Probably wouldn't be so different that much. But the doubt remains. I think. I think the aesthetic of the film is probably what Wells intended. It's just you never like because he wasn't fully there for the the editing. So there are choices that they had to make. Like and they can't make it for Wells. That's just so, of course, that's it. of course, for sure. But in the matter of of the the meaning of it, at least in in the terms of uh, his cons you know him being a, a director of old and trying to um doing his comeback and trying to finish a film that is important to him, but the constraints of the industry and third party perceptions not allowing him. So that's pretty much there. And you know I think the the crew understood that, and he left memos, he left notes. So um, even if the form can be slightly different, um, I think there are things that are inherent to what he shot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and Wells didn't start having problems with financing films with this one. Like, no, no, it's no. one of the constants in his life after yeah. Citizen Kane, or after, yeah, maybe after after he leaves Hollywood. I think that's one of the constants. So it's not, uh, yeah, the context here maybe doesn't change that much. If it's released in the 70s, that is still true, that he has trouble getting money, even though he's like considered a legend and everybody loves him, and loves talking mm -hmm. to him, loves having him around when one gives him money to make his films. Yeah, that's very sad. And in that respect, to that extent, I think it's a film for 
filmmakers. It's a film that is very is very much built for the perception of a filmmaker, has a viewer to watch, particularly independent filmmakers will relate with the irony, the fun irony of certain scenes. For example, I think that is deliciously beautiful. The fact that you have this fast, uh, it's an example of a film. I normally say that I like, uh, you know, a film that really takes its time with the characters, let the, act the acting shine through and so have lingering shots and be minimalist. But there are times when I like fast paced editing and it can very much be the style of a film. Godard does that. And um, for example, in this film is a perfect example of how fast paced editing can be used to really just in terms of form, bring you into the cacophony that is the party. You feel it is a film that uh, first point um, really romanticizes reality as film. I feel myself to be inside the film because, because of the cacophony and the fast-paced editing and the cuts between zooms and bringing lines upon each other. I feel I am in the party. I feel very immersed by the film. And it's not a question of uh, the, the traditional immersion of answering to classical narrative questions of one protagonist, one antagonistic force, one clear motive. It is about the editing making me feel so. So I find that very, very much uh, interesting in terms of form, that it is the form that is making me, uh, and also the acting, of course, but emotionally compelled by the film and feel immersed in the film. I feel like I am inside a house in that chaos. But one thing that is delicious about the beginning is the counterbalance between that editing, style of editing, the crew getting you know on the bus with the dummies, which I've which on, on that regard, I find an interesting commenting on how a director has, a director's ego has a bad side and a good side, because yes, he elevates people. He elevates the actors that he finds as undiscovered talents, but at the same time, um, he uses people. He treats them like dummies. It's literally putting the crew in, on the bus with the dummies of the actor he's going to shoot later uh, at night. And at one, at one point, the critic says, um, well, he, he brings them into existence. He, he, he's like God, he conceives them. And then the other critic says, talking about his, his actors who are undiscovered talents and he puts on screen. Another critic replies, well, and he cuts them out of existence as well. So, you know, it's, uh, it comments to that, that side of the director as well, the good and the bad of the ego. And, but what I liked about the beginning is that contrabalance between the frenetic editing. And then suddenly there is this very quiet scene, this very kind of secretive scene because it's filmed behind this kind of shadowy um, bits. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, and in the background, you see this producer of the film, Max David, meeting with Billy, one of the, you know, the stooges of the crew, who is trying to show him uh, the dailies and, and convince him that the film is going on well and we need more money. And it's just interesting to see Max saying, yeah, it's good, but I want to read the script. <laughs> and Billy says, I love Billy because he's so, uh, there is no script. You know, uh, he just makes it up as he goes along. He has done it before. <laughs> just so such a wide-eyed kid. And yeah. it's just so interesting to see this thing happening in that moment. It's like Wells is saying, could we find this ideal thing that we want to find as filmmakers? And I think that's, that's what I was saying, that this is a film made for filmmakers. We will laugh at the irony of this question. Where is the script? There isn't a script. He doesn't have one. But the thing is, we want to try and we, he's trying to convince him to give him the money. He's trying to find this ideal combination between this risk averse way of producing films that are big budget films, audience tested and combined with these artful films that are run by fully the intuition and the range free, uh, the emotional, you know, side of a director who is kind of wild free and has no range. 
and trying to combine that too, what is the ideal? It's almost like trying to find that ideal, which still doesn't exist, I think, uh, perfectly. It's almost like trying to find the perfect uh, method of electing people <laughs> for government. It hasn't yet been, been found, we, we, really. Uh, it's uh, the perfect w way to elect bodies of government. So the perfect, the ideal way to, to make it, to, you know, to make cinema that is both risk averse, uh, big budget film, but also artful. I think it hasn't been found yet, or, or there are always, you know, inconsistencies. There are there are always things that don't don't go right, and that's I think what the film also reflects upon. Absolutely, but I think, like, I watch that film that he's making. I'm like, would I give money to this if I was a producer? True. <laughs> it's like, and I think that's interesting on Wells part that he doesn't make the film within a film like a like a very good thing it's kind of like i don't know it's kind of cheap it's not cheap it's yeah, i mean of... I, I don't even care about the film yeah yeah exactly but you still feel like but give the man money let him try yeah yeah i want to let like... him try because um you know i mean it's even strange to call that uh, a film. almost a film yeah because it's, it's such an attempt. Uh, it's almost like a really long ad, like for a perfume or or a car, <laughs> because they keep chasing each other, and then there's this sense of of publicity. It's strange. It's almost like through that he's asking the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then and the way the guy Billy is explaining the film to the producer as we were watching the image, and it's like he's giving context that it's like impossible for us to see. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. he's following her because he, she loves that doll. She always loved that. <laughs> we don't know that man. Yeah, yeah. And he's always like uh, chewing, you know, stuff like uh, the, the gummy bears or whatever he has. And Jay kind of makes a joke about it. Maybe it's that gummies that you chew on. <laughs> you don't have any more words. <laughs> what? What is wrong with my gummies? Is starts complaining. Uh, but, but the performances here, you're talking about the editing. Yeah, the performances are outstanding. Outstanding. Peter Bogdanovich is a good actor. Yeah, Bogdanovich is awesome. And, the, and when he starts doing impressions, it's more of a oh, funny yeah, little yeah. moment, but I like I it. Even, I even feel like I James know... James Stewart impression. The James Stewart, he did it. Yeah, like sometimes I hear something that he does and I'm like, I know that person, who is that? But then I was just trying to think who he's impersonating. <laughs> but I mean, I think for me, John Huston is nice. his performance is even better. I mean, he's so he's, his, he drips with charisma. Yeah, I his think. smile. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, uh, he he so just want to be in the room with him. It's, yeah, he just want you know. It's like you get it. You get it's instant man crush. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. sort of Clint Eastwood type of director actor that has this charisma, just dripping. This rough machismo. Yeah. But he brings also a, yeah, a, a tragic sadness, like a, that dimension to it. You do feel like he's very lonely and sad. Like when he's talking to Bogdanovich, Otter Lake, and he, I think uh, Otter Lake asks him, like, how many times have you been broke now or whatever? The way they're speaking about their finances, very, it's pretty sad because you know that one is very successful now. Yeah. And the other is struggling a lot and he says like oh i've been broke uh one time it's like you feel like that's a lie as well it's <laughs> probably been mm -hmm, broke yeah. a lot more times yeah <clears throat> but there's, there's a distance a... between them that 
comes from the fact that they are at financial their financial realities are so different now and their support from studios are so different i don't know it's strange because you don't you don't see how they were before but you feel like there's a massive yeah. difference between them now and that's the same reality with, with, with peter bodanovich and arson Wells as well because it's yeah. a relationship mentor mentee and peter was you know at the high in his career, Norson wasn't, and he was feeling that it wasn't fair that Wells wasn't being treated right uh, by um, the film industry and community. So it's one other way that it mirrors reality. Yeah. And um, the film never loses track of itself and what it wants to say, despite having this very loose uh, editing. It, it always has these quieter moments, which are you know are full are full of an intimacy that amongst this environment of a whole party going on you go to different parts of the party and different people doing different things. You have Zara doing an interview, suddenly you have Dennis Hopper talking to camera. Then you have Jack Hannaford on another room with Peter Bodanovich complaining about financing and whatnot. And then there's the whole question that I think gives it a lot of, gives the, you know, the, the atmosphere within the ranch, such a, another layer of richness, which is the fact that Jack Hannaford gets along with the other members of the crew, closer ones, kind of, old guard once and starts talking about uh, the possibility of uh, asking for money asking Otter Lake for money because he, he comes from a rich family and all and he says we don't screw our friends we don't ask our friends for money uh you know that's that's interesting that relationship that starts to, um, to build and it has a lot to do with uh, the fact that there are different financial positions it it, it talks a lot to the idea that, and in the end, uh, Hannaford feels betrayed by Bogdanovich. It speaks a lot to the fact that Orson Welles feels betrayed by Bogdanovich and then Bogdanovich betrayed by Welles because he went on to speak on a talk show with Burt Reynolds and he foul-mouthed uh, Bogdanovich. And then Bogdanovich phoned Welles and he said, I, I tuned in to you last night and to see what you thought of me. And now I know. Uh, yeah, so... I don't know. It's that thing. It's that thing. When a director has an ego, has a good side and a bad side, yeah, exactly. and particularly when you become a, too much of a legend, I think, and, and talked by third party uh, people, fans and admirers and critics. And I think that's very much part of the film at its core. And well, as an example of that, you know, you feel the liberty to say shit that you shouldn't have said, and you hurt people in the process, and you use people in the process. And I think the f in that in that sense, other side of the wind is very much about the behavior of you know director a director at its most extremes both personally as a person and the ethics of being a person and also the ethics of filmmaking like you are saying the film other side of the wind within the film doesn't seem to go anywhere it's just him kind of giving a go experimenting and the whole question should be should we give money to him but as well what if he does something good what if he does something great out of this you know people felt he also has a, the an interesting line the yeah, yeah. Easton also has an an interesting line, which is like, um, I mean, I don't borrow money. You don't borrow money from yourself. So, <laughs> so you know, you also inside these uh, mm -hmm. possibilities of, yeah, of asking for help. Yeah. Yeah. I there's think, the ego. I think the line is more. Uh, you don't. The wor It's worst thing to. Well, it's good to borrow from each other. We shouldn't borrow ideas from yourself. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I don't think it's ideas. I think it's an, that's another scene, I think. Oh, it must be different scenes then. Uh, yeah, but I remember that one, yeah, I remember. Where it's okay to borrow from each other, but it, you should never... But if you borrow from yourself, then there's a problem or something like that. Yeah. Uh, then maybe, yeah, maybe it's... <laughs> maybe it's that one. 
But uh, there's certain things in the film that I don't really get, like the midgets thing I don't get. Yeah, it's strange. <laughs> the midgets, I think it's so out of left field. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't belong. Yeah. But, but fine, whatever. It's just, it feels like they're just trying to make the party crazier. Yeah. yeah. But this doesn't really translate. It's ne next, <laughs> next, next stage to the party, let's bring the midget. The film ends like with a giant, like an inflatable, inflatable cock. It's like a dick. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. Like, the, like, <laughs> it's very weird, strange. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was saying visually, Wells is a very, it's one of my favorite directors. He's, he, his technique and approach, he's constantly asking how can we film this in a brand new way and and so i don't have a favorite film exactly it's it, to to think of a favorite film of wells to me his films are an amalgamation to me i don't they don't differ from one another it's like when i think of my favorite wells film i just, to my mind that just comes wells himself the name you know everything i think of othello i love othello the, the opening but then i think of touch of evil and moments i like in it uh but then Sims and Kane, certain things. And Sims and Kane is not even my favorite of his all. Uh, but it, it's just an amalgamation of everything. Yeah, I think Touch of Evil is probably the one I like the most. I love the most. But I love mm -hmm. all of his films. I don't think there's been a a Wells film. Maybe Macbeth. I didn't care that much for that one. Yeah, how is he Macbeth? Oh, I, like, I really like Fault Stuff. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah Shime. Yeah, Shime's. The form. I have to rewatch it. Shime's at Midnight. Just has a whole atmosphere. So interesting. The way he films a forest, the way he films a castle. And F for fake, obviously. Fantastic. F for fake, of course. Yeah. It's a very fun, provocative ride, F for fake. Yeah. But yeah, I agree that what you're saying, it does feel like more like a whole. It's like. Yeah. It's like, it just, I just. Images come to my mind, just random images of every film, like color, black and white, everything. I don't think of one film. Othello. Just gives me filmmaker orgasm <laughs> because I, there are certain scenes in it that I just I I really legit. It's like when I saw, <laughs> well, this is a Marvel film, but I was you know I don't know ten or something. When I saw when I saw Iron Man for the first time, I went to the cinema, and I had a, an attack watching the, the 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 Iron Man. Like it was an action scene, and I was so giddy, so giddy that I couldn't control myself. Like I, there's just explosions going on. It was a, one of the first like superhero films, and I was like looking at it. I was like, oh my fucking god, I was like, just going up in the chair. And the adult with me was like, sit down, sit down. I was like, crazy. Shooting, you know, oh my god, he did that, you know, shooting. It's crazy. That was like super hyperactive. I get and hyperactive. Marvel films never did that again. We can't, we can't ignore the fact that the script for this film, The Other Side of the Wind, is incredible. I mean... I mean, I, I don't even know... You know, was it written or was he also like kind of winging it? I don't know. But it doesn't feel like it. It feels yeah, and, written. And especially because of the way the editing goes with different perspectives on the conversations. I feel like it's too complex for just a simple improvisation. Yeah, yeah at least the sketch was made, I, I'd say, for each scene. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, perhaps. No, there but, uh, was a, a script yeah. as in a, you know. You know. A very uh, simple draft. Yeah, yeah. 
I imagine. I, mean, I imagine. Uh, I don't think it was that simple, honestly. I don't know. No? I think structurally there was a, a sketch, but I don't. I, I can't didn't imagine. Say it was improvised. Yeah, I can't imagine writing down these dialogues. No, no, no. But I also can't imagine every scene being coming out of out of nowhere. Well, I, I mean, I imagine more a type of, uh, you know, like a Larry David type of structuring where you don't right. write okay. the dialogue, you write like the setup of the scene and then you, you know, you work it through, you know, there's dialogues that are written because you have to get to the, the point, but other things are more improvised. But even in a show like Curb, it's, you, you can tell that those moments exist, um, especially if you know how it's written through the, the acting or some breaks and in here it feels so fluid. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. It, it, it it warrants some doubt, I think. It must because... be a, a meeting between the two approaches that I think can agree on. We just don't know how much was written. Basically. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a, a Cassavetes and Larry David yeah, type I of deal. I was constantly <laughs> you know? thinking of Cassavetes. You yeah, know? me too. Me too. Very much. And the that. thing is, for example, in Fuller, I, I don't buy the over the top acting because I'm meant to be immersed and believe the story, and there's a suspension of disbelief going on. While in Cassavetes, the over the top acting, and here. Not the acting, but um, the frenetic side with with the camera and very often handheld use. I, I I'm com it gives me another kind of immersion uh, where I'm completely bought by the approach. And I love Cassavetes. I love the over the top acting of Cassavetes. Well, where despite the over the top acting, uh, there's the actors seem to have such a gripping control over what they are doing, and I buy into the emotions. Um, yeah. While in some other films, perhaps I would feel silly. Possibly. I think it's the commitment to it, probably. Because the actors really commit to it. So in Cassavetes, I remember in Faces, that happening a lot. Like, just laughing hysterically yeah, right in yeah. front of the camera and screaming. I mean, you know, the film is the acting. The film is the acting. A lot, much like in The Other Side of the Wind, the film is the acting. Um, you know, it's just the actors shining through with their lines, and um, it's many yeah. things. I think I honestly, it's one of those cases where it's really hard to tell which which part of it is stronger because the editing is so causes such an impression. The, the, the constant uh, use of of black and white against color it's such makes such an impression as well the directing the acting i mean it's it's strong on so many levels yeah it's, it's uh, everything seems to work yeah it's almost like it couldn't have been in any other way all these things it's you know just how the story was was imagined there was a clear idea behind it a very specific thing in mind that you that you wanted to capture and then again, there were much a lot other films that he was making or intent to make that he didn't ever, never saw the light of day, not just the other side of the wind. But yeah, it's very yeah. frustrating. It's very sad. And sad. It's very sad. Frustrating and sad because you know how good he is. It's like it's not like it's an unknown guy and you don't know if he's gonna make a good film yeah. or not. Like it's Orson Welles. Like and his film, The Other Side of the Wind, was apprehended by the Iranian government. Because the production company was Iranian, uh, the son-in-law of the Shah, 
<laughs> he was working with anyone. <laughs> yeah, just to get the money. The son-in-law of the Shah had this production company. And then when Ayatollah Khamenei like, overthrew the Shah, the company just, just shut off. And so the, the film went, went into a vault in Paris and he was trying to make them... He was they trying put to a fatwa on arson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was just just trying to get the film back. And he went to Paris until his like last dying breath. He was trying to get the film back to his hands. But France wouldn't have any, wouldn't have any of it. He was, they were just saying the film belongs to the producer. And the producer is shut off. So you don't get it. And then the, the cameraman, the director of photography. Um, I remember his name off the other side of the wind. You know, he did, he really believed Orson. He wanted to, you know, he went, the first time he knew that Orson was in Beverly Hills Hotel somewhere and he went there to meet him. That's how their whole relationship started. He told about his film, The Other Side of the Wind, that he was making. And they started making it. And while they were doing this film, which lasted from 70 to 76, he was just picking up other jobs and saying, Orson, I have to eat. I have to pay for stuff. And uh, he did porn films. He did B-movies, he did films for Ed Wood. You know, he, he didn't want that in his resume, but he did them so he could, you know, pay for stuff and do his Orson's film. And then he never got up. And then, you know, um, the cameraman died in the 90s or something. And, you know, he spent all his life, you know, thinking that the other side of the wind would be his grand film, his breakthrough. And yet, all he did were these porn films <laughs> and B-movies, you know, it's, it's just, imagine your life wasted. I mean, you know, it's just... What's, what's the name of the, of the DP? I don't remember. It's Craig. I think it's Craig something. It? I, don't know. I mean, it says here's Gary Graver. Gary, Gary, yeah. yeah but he yeah. died in 2006. Ah, okay, fine. Well, yeah. 2006, 90s. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, it's a shame. It's especially because it took so long to, to actually finish it. Yeah. And it's so good. <laughs> Even that, like, yeah. I can really, I, I see why Wells and the crew would be invested in it. Because it really is fantastic. Even in this form. You know another film that feels like it's an Orson Welles films, but it's not an Orson Welles films? It's um, The Third Man. Miguel doesn't like him very much. But uh, I agree with Miguel in the sense that the music in that film is very, I, I don't know, I mean, it's very overbearing and it, it doesn't make any sense for the right. tone of the film. I have problems with the music. But I like the, I like the film, I like Wells in it. He's very, you know, seductive. <laughs> like he is. I mean, he's definitely a good actor, but I mean, that's not, that's not the whole thing. That's not the whole thing. I don't know, but I remember enjoying the plot. Yeah, it's... But I'll have to rewatch. I don't think I'll rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Reed. I thought Carol Reed was a woman. Yeah, I was like, that oh, that's good. Like, good for her. Ah, uh, no, <laughs> it's some guy. Can't wait for the for that next for Wells the next, film. Yeah, where he has a lot of potential. I still believe that he released the film in 2018. To me, it's like, I don't see it has a 70s film. I see it has a 2018 film. I want to believe that he really, Wells was here and he released it now. 40 years, hiatus. I think it, yeah. It comes back. It is a, a intemporal film. It lives in its own time.
It's timely and timeless. It's of its time and of no time at all. Accordsonwell yeah. says the director is the man who presides over divine accidents. And I think this is a series of divine accidents. That's what the, the reporters told of the film at the time. And I always remember that line when kind of doing things. It's the unpredictable part of filmmaking that kind of builds its magical moments. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we can only hope that they find more lost films from lost films from Wells or yeah. like footage that they can build into something or maybe that they find the I always talk about this one but the magnificent Ambersons the original cut that was torn apart by the studio he, he, he was asked by the government during the edit of that film to go to Brazil I think and shoot some um, you know tribal thing some cultural stuff and in the meantime he receives a note a phone call from uh, the editor saying you need to come back you need to come back they're messing up with the film and you know it's just uh, why would you backstab someone in the back like that and, and sometimes they make it feel like the media makes makes it at the time makes it seem like oh the director fell from grace you know who didn't make much of you know good stuff after citizen kane it just gets me so fucking annoyed, you know. It just gets me so annoyed. I was watching. What are you talking about. I was watching Super Bad the other day. It was on, and they make like a joke about Orson Welles, which is strange. But they say like that. It's like they they make a joke about someone peaking in high school, and then after that, it's all, you know, like downhill. And they do the the bridge with that with Citizen Kane, and then after that, it was all downhill. It's like, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> I, I see the point, but not throw my man under the bus. He made a lot of masterpieces after that. Yeah, it's downhill on, only on a superficial point. Yeah, exactly. You know, that he's not working on with Hollywood. But for a lot of people, that's the thing. If, if you're not Hollywood, then, you, then you're, for, surprisingly so, if you're not Hollywood, you are not in the cool group. Yeah, ultimately, the, right thing. the problem was that Citizen Kane didn't make money. Like, it didn't mm -hmm. make that much money. It made money, but... It's more of an Oscar buzz thing. Yeah, it was very critically acclaimed, but not. It, it. I don't know if it was a box office bomb technically, but it. Yeah, it didn't see the return that they wanted, and so they started. Just with every film, they tried to change what he was doing because they saw, like, Wells was the problem. Like he was the way he was building the films was why we weren't carrying the money back. Which is annoying because on magnificent Emerson's in specific, they were just complaining that it's too sad, it's too you know, you know, depressive, and I'm like, it just it's the type of thing that gets you annoyed. <laughs> but I mean, you do get different. sentiments around Hollywood because I mean, it was an elite being there was, was meant something, and yeah. leaving didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. I think I think Wells was clearly. He liked that status of being the Hollywood guy and being respected mm -hmm. there. But at the same time, he had a lot of resentment for it, especially yeah. because of the way he was treated. So he he liked being in Europe as well, in the with the higher status guys in Europe, the more artful mm -hmm. guys. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's the art. I mean, if he if he didn't have such a creative. Uh... Uh, how you say? <laughs> Impetus. Drive. Yeah. Creative drive. It probably wouldn't 
I don't know. I guess he would have and just stayed and there. And that is what is most inspiring about him is that it's his resilience to make films and his love for film and to keep on pushing and doing. I think that's what's super inspiring about the other side of the wind, even if the director dies at the end. <laughs> but uh, and himself, I think that's what I'll you know he's a, a model, a role model in that yeah. sense. Yeah, Wells is he's the man. He always um, showed up for Q and A's. He always showed up for interviews, even in the Dickavet show back in the USA. Despite the fact that, uh, you know, he wasn't being accepted. He showed up at the AFI when they gave him the Life Achievement Award, yeah. literally begging for money for, to complete the other side. Yeah. Yeah, Nobody that. gave a crap. And that's so sad. Yeah. You know? And he's, yeah, that's sad. Also, on a final note, oh, now I remember you're talking about Othello. Filming Othello, the film, like the documentary he does. That one, like... Watching that, I feel like I learned so much about process and making a film and like the difficulties. And that's the thing I like about Wells a lot in listening to him, that he feels like you feel on the same level as him, as him in the sense that he, the way he talks to people, I don't feel like he diminishes you or that he's like, oh, I'm so superior. I made Citizen yeah. Kane. Like, no, he talks to you and you learn from it. And I, I think I value that a lot from filmmakers that do interviews and stuff like that. I like to learn from them and like, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I guess you can criticize sometimes about Kodar that is very cryptic. You don't know what the fuck he's talking about, <laughs> but in, a, yes. in other times, he's not an educator, <laughs> nah, other times I think he's an educator, like, uh, in the Dick Cavett interview that he did, I, I think he, he does say something that he's a different mm -hmm. kind of educator. Yes. Let's say he's a, but there are a lot of them who professor. Yeah. <laughs> seem to just lay down on the cryptic side. I can think of some Portuguese filmmakers. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> who will leave things on the cryptic and yeah. you never get a full understanding of what are you talking about? Yeah, no, some some directors should just shut up. It's usually <laughs> when they don't know shit. That's all for today. If you'd like to reach out and suggest a film for the next episode, you can find us on the podcast official Instagram and Facebook pages. Don't forget to subscribe, share this episode, or simply give us a like. Please. That's how our podcast can grow ever more groovy. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Give the bye. Bye-bye.